Hey guys, welcome to the Let's Get To It podcast. I'm your host, Kelly Hamilton, and I'm so glad you're here. We are going to be talking to people from all different walks of life about faith, family, and friendship. All right, let's get to it. Today, we are starting a new series on race in America with three different episodes that discuss race and faith, race and family, and race and friendship. Today, we are talking about race and faith with guests Timelin Bowens and Amanda McMonagall. They are co-facilitators of the Louisville Chapter of Be the Bridge, a nonprofit organization whose goal is to create healthy dialogue about race in the United States with an emphasis on promoting understanding about racial disparities and injustice. All right, guys, let's get to it. I want to welcome my guests today, Timelin and Amanda. Thank you guys so much for being here on the Let's Get To It podcast. I really want to start by discussing what brought each of you to the work of racial reconciliation. Um, Timelin, let's start with you. What led you to this work? Uh, Were there any things as an African-American woman that you had to process before coming to this conversation of racial reconciliation? Those are two very, very deep questions. Um, But before I answer them, thank you for the opportunity to be here on your podcast to discuss this topic. Um, For me, what led me to the work of reconciliation, I was born and grew up in predominantly white spaces. Um, So for me, I was always around people that did not look like me. And for lack of a better word, I kind of was a safe black person Mm -hmm. or person of color. Um, But it wasn't until getting older, I realized that everybody didn't quite blend as well. So I was in a predicament where I was like, why can't everybody just get along? Um, And then feeling like it was kind of like my duty to help other people see what we had in common so that we could, um, you know, just live together. It didn't have to be one of those things where, oh, we don't really like them because they're black or white. It was, I wanted to help them understand we really were very similar and Mm. we didn't have to not get along because of that. Um, as a child, that's how I felt about it. And I mean, even as an adult, sometimes I do too. With the work of reconciliation, though, like every so often, there's new things that I have to process. Um, sometimes it's like, oh, can I just keep these friends and like not have to go back through the work? Uh, because people don't realize it, the whole journey of reconciliation like is a process. Um, right. So as new things happen in society, I have to remember like, okay, do these white friends that I have really see me as black or am I back to being that safe person? Are we really reconciling here or am I just safe? Mm -hmm. Um, So that's one of the things I have to process before coming to the conversation um, every so often. Yeah. Amanda, what about you? What brought you to this work? Yeah, well, just to echo what Timon said, thank you for having us on here and giving us the opportunity to talk about the work. Um, mine started uh, when we adopted our son. Um, we are a transracial adoptive family. And if someone doesn't know what that is, it just simply means we have children outside of um, our race and culture. And when that happened, um, initially, I didn't quite 
get it, but uh, when my middle son was about two years old, um, I met a black woman, and she really challenged me as to what do you think you're doing as a white woman um, raising a black boy, and how are you going to handle X, Y, and Z? And mm-hmm. some things I had answers for, some things I didn't, but by the grace of God, I walked away from that interaction and said, hmm, apparently there's a lot of stuff that I don't know. And mm-hmm. so it kind of sent me into a deep dive about the experience of living black in America. And I just did that by reading a lot and turning to a lot of books. Um, and during that process and that journey and that learning, um, someone introduced me to uh, be the bridge. And then also during that time, we left our predominantly white church and joined a predominantly black church. And our pastor each January has what he calls Vision Month, and he preaches on the vision for our church. And so we had been there, I think it was a little bit over a year, and each week he's preaching about the vision, and he felt feels like he is called to preach to a diverse church, not a predominantly just black church. Mm-hmm. And I'm sitting in the congregation, and I'm thinking, oh, okay, really, God, like, do you need me to do something here? Because, you know, like 10 years ago, when I was praying for a baby, I just wanted to have a cute baby to hold and like a baby, to, you know, a child to raise. And so my husband and I talked and I had reached out to our pastor and just said, you know, if there's something that our family can do and be part of that um, and work towards that, then here we are, you know, use us. So that's kind of what brought us to the work. Mm-hmm. So what does racial reconciliation look like to, to each of you? You know, we talk about, we throw out this term, but in, in as practical manner as you can give us, like, what does that look like in your mind's eye? Um, for me, racial reconciliation looks like us living life together. Um, right now, racial reconciliation is a buzzword. And like, you see the cute posters, we have a black person, a white person, an Asian person, and that that's good for advertising, but it's not real. It's just surface level. Like we don't have reconciliation if we can't live together and work together. Um, So when you asked me earlier, like about the work of racial reconciliation, that is what I'm working towards to live in harmony. I mean, we're all humans. Is it going to be perfect harmony? (laughs) Absolutely not. But when tough situations arise, we'll be able to have conversations versus separating. That's what racial reconciliation looks like to me. I think it's um, really challenging to uh, have an idea of what racial reconciliation looks like because we have, we've never been reconciled to one another in our country. Um, we are trying to do something that we've never had in America. The only time that we've been reconciled to one another is when God created um, created us. And then we humans came along and created this concept of race and hierarchy. So uh, part, I agree fully with what Timelin said. I also think about racial reconciliation encompasses and looks like a lot of listening to one another, mm-hmm. uh, believing when Timelin tells me that this is her experience. I listen and I believe it. Um, and for me, if we are truly friends, it also goes to towards the um, allyship and standing up for someone else and, and 
you know, defending them? I think for me, when, when I think of racial reconciliation and specifically in the church, I'll just talk about the church in general. You know, I see it as definitely having a, uh, a diversity of, um, of makeup of the body, you know, be it racial and ethnic um, representation in the body. But I also see that reconciliation, true reconciliation is, is reflected in all aspects of the church. So for example, the leadership, the music styles, the preaching, the sermon examples, um, the philosophy of mission, you know, all of these things are represented and reflective of the people in the body and not just an assimilation of, yes, we have people of different races and ethnicities represented um, and they attend, but that it is an integration and not an assimilation um, in how the church functions. How does your faith motivate you to continue the pursuit of racial reconciliation? I was just thinking about what you said um, and the integration um, throughout the church, because I mean, like, what would that look like? I feel like when worship styles change too much, you're like, oh, that's a little, oh, that's too white churchy. That's too black churchy. That's too fast. That's too slow. But what's it going to be like in heaven? (laughs) Right. Yeah. What? who are we to judge what the worship style that God loves is supposed to sound like or look like? Um, and I think, or I know my faith influences me to work towards that because without it, I would have given up a long time ago. Like, you know what? This is hard. This is work. And I'm going to go sit over here in my bubble where things are a little bit easier and, not do it but I feel like it is um I don't want to say job but it's it's an assignment like a god-given assignment Mm. because I don't think people actually look at it that way like when we get to heaven we can't be like well we're just not going to put up with them or like make ourselves uncomfortable um and not work together like we have to get over that unless we don't want to go but that's right. a, a different, <laughs> different podcast episode. Right. So, I mean, I really, because there have been times, especially when we have like a shooting or something like that, where it's like, I just don't want to do this work anymore. But it's definitely a God thing that the motivation kicks in. It's like, no, I have to, because there are people when we talk about this work that are, they want to start, but they're completely lost. They don't know how to get started, how to get the conversation going. Um, and yeah, that is not me. <laughs> That's not of myself that motivates me to want to do that. It's absolutely a faith thing. So back to your point, Kelly, um, when we're discussing this in the church, I feel like if we don't have that diversity and inclusion in all areas of the church, then we're not really experiencing the fullness of God because we know we're all created in the image of God. And if we believe that, and I think that we all do because we say we believe the Bible, 
then we have to have that to fully experience God. What do you all see? And, and Timlin, you hit on this a little bit. What do you all see as the biggest obstacle keeping people from coming to the conversation? I would say that it's fear and hurt. And I know you asked what is the biggest thing. That was two of them. That's um, okay. Because like I mentioned earlier, some people just don't know where to get started. And I've heard, oh, I don't want to stick my foot in my mouth. Like, well, if you're just sitting here, <laughs> like your inaction is doing more than you actually saying something for a lot of people. Because if you're just sitting there and you see what's going on, you're like, yeah, that's not right. Well, I think that you agree with it. Um, and I know I'm not the only person that feels that way. But then on the flip side of things, when I speak to other people of color, they don't want to have the conversation from being hurt mm. over and over. And it's one of those things like we have social media now. We have stuff going on on the news. Like, how can you not see why I'm hurting? And the first thing that you want to do is make me um, not a victim here, but like the reason that it's happening. So I would say those are the two biggest obstacles to better preventing people from coming to this conversation. I think two um, is if we are aware of things, if we acknowledge them from the white person's perspective, if I'm going to acknowledge that maybe things aren't as I've always known them, then what does that mean for me after that? Like I have to do something after that, which eventually is repentance. And if I repent, well then what does that say about me as a person? And we, we know that we all believe that we're really good people and we are mm -hmm. good. I mean, it's the first thing in Genesis when God created the world, you know, I, I it is good. Um, and so I think there's a little bit of that, like, I don't want to be seen as not a good person. Mm. And okay, but even if I can overcome that part, then, okay, maybe I acknowledge I have this privilege. Well, I mean, I kind of like my privilege. <laughs> um, am I willing to give that up? Am I willing to share that? Am I willing to leverage that? Um, so, and, and I think ultimately, we all live in bubble in, in our own bubbles. Mm -hmm. So. Yeah, it's easier not to. Timlin, I want to go back to a point you just made, though, um, of our Black brothers and sisters being resistant because of previous hurt. So what would you tell um, a new bridge builder who's coming to the table for the first time, who I think you're right, uh, is afraid of putting their foot in their mouth, uh, potentially causing harm? What advice would you give to them to uh, help create a safer space for our Black brothers and sisters to not inflict hurt on them? Does that make sense? Yes, and that's a great question. Um, so Be the Bridge is a Christian-based um, study organization. But what I've noticed, we've noticed in our group, not everybody that is coming to this conversation is a believer. So my advice for the two would be slightly different. Um, so if they were a believer, I would encourage them to pray about it, um, to ask for God's guidance in those discussions. Because um, there's always that, 
still small voice that sometimes you're like, uh, I'm not going to listen. I'm just going to override that and say what I want to. Right. Um, so that's definitely the first thing that I would um, advise them to do. But in both situations, I would say to be willing to listen and be willing to not be right about everything. Um, because a lot of times when we look at history or media, we're looking through a white lens and perspective. So for a lot of people new to the conversation, new to the conversation, these perspectives aren't something that they've ever um, actually taken the time to listen to, or they just haven't heard them because of the environments that they've been in. Um, Timlin, I think that's great. I think listening, you're right, is so important. I know Latasha Morrison says, you know, new bridge builders are encouraged to listen, which is an action verb. Um, so what does active listening look like? Um, I think for a lot of people, it's really hard. I think in a lot of white spaces, um, listening can be seen or perceived as passive when it's we want to do something. So if there's a problem, we need to fix it. So tell me, what does active listening look like? For me, it may be different for, <laughs> for other people. I like when people, when they're actively listening, they're still engaging. Um, so while, yes, not always being right, listening is important. If you have a question about my experience, I want you to still ask me that um, as I'm sharing with you. Now, not necessarily, I think one of the things that people do say, oh, well, this black person said that. It was like, well, I can't share the whole black experience. I can only share mine. So I don't mind being asked deeper questions, but I know everybody is not like that. So for me, actively listening would be engaging in the conversation. Like I'm telling you this for a reason. Mm. Um, I don't want to feel like the educator <laughs> in the room and everybody just take notes on my perspective. But I want to have a conversation about it. Um, even so, as these people are learning, I want to know because I know that I will encounter these experiences again, unfortunately. Like, how can I better protect myself, better protect my husband in those situations, and even my child that I'm raising. So I need that input as well. Mm. Yeah. Amanda, what about you? Um, kind of as a, a co-facilitator of these conversations, what does active, active listening look like for you? You know, I think it's so, uh, this is a challenge we have. Uh, we, we are asking white bridge builders to come and be part of a conversation but then we're also saying, and we really want you to listen. <laughs> so trying to find uh, that sweet spot, because if, it, if, if the various sides are not all sharing, then it's not really a conversation. Um, but I think the act of listening kind of goes back to something that I said earlier. We, we listen with an open heart and an open mind. And going back to something Timlin said is praying for those things praying for that spirit of being open and being humble. Um, let's enter this conversation saying there's some things that I just don't know that I don't know. Um, and 
You know what? When a black brother or sister shares something with me, when they first say it to me, I might not fully, I don't know if I want to say I don't fully believe it. I may not fully understand what they're saying. And I've even said to before to another bridge builder, okay, you know what? I'm going to sit, I'm really going to sit with what you just shared with me. And I'm just going to, I'm going to sit with that for a while and let that marinate um, before responding. Um, So that's kind of, I think, for me, what I would say of active listening. Mm-hmm. And that's still engaging. Like what Timlin said, you know, you're still engaging in the conversation, even if you're saying, I hear you and I need to let that simmer. I need to mm-hmm. process that. And I think it's also taking the responsibility to come back to the conversation and say, Hey, I was thinking about this. I know it might've been a week ago. Can we talk about it again? has been a year of tragic loss. We lament the deaths of over 164 black brothers and sisters who have died at the hand of injustice, including Jonathan Price, David McAtee, Amir Johnson, Ahmaud Arbery, Breonna Taylor, George Floyd, and Elijah McLean, who died in 2019, but whose story gained national attention in 2020. We say their names to honor their humanity. For a full list of those we have lost, go to the Washington Post or CBS News websites. Listen in as Timlin and Amanda discuss how these tragic events have influenced the conversation around race in America. How have you guys seen the the many tragic events of 2020 impact the conversation? surrounding race in America? Well, I think obviously we've had um, a lot of people, uh, their awareness has increased. Um, I know we have talked a lot about in some ways, um, we feel like God has allowed COVID-19 and this new civil rights movement to kind of happen at the same time in that COVID-19 had shut so much stuff down that when a lot of these events started happening, people, were, they were already watching the TV and they were watching the news. And so I think it, it, got, it got across to more people. Um, but certainly, um, you know, we've had more people start to work on their awareness and say that they want to come to the table. Um, yeah, I would agree with Amanda. We have definitely seen more people coming to the table, willing to do the work. Um, But I think it also has um, magnified the fear and the hurt. So I know when I speak with other people of color, like I said earlier, they're just tired. Um, And then with COVID-19 shutting everything down, you just kind of feel like in a box and all this stuff is going on. Um, and not being used to having these conversations with people that don't look like you, it kind of feels restrictive. Um, and I think I've seen the fear magnified as well, because I think there is a very common misconception that when people are out protesting, that Black people are looking for revenge instead of equality. Mm-hmm. So we have all of these emotions fired up which is the perfect time for us right now to build that bridge. But it's just 
helping put out those fires so we can go ahead and have that conversation. And I know personally, um, I, I've had a few people that I had conversations with two or three years ago, um, and they didn't get what I was saying two or three years ago. And I've gotten text messages or phone calls and said, hey, I'm sorry, I didn't, I didn't get what you were saying several years ago. I, I'm here now. I'm listening. I'm going to start doing the work. So for you personally, Timelin, how do these conversations affect you spiritually, physically, kind of emotionally, mentally? And I know that's a big question, <laughs> but, but as an African-American woman, as a, as, a, as a person leading in this conversation, um, how has this been affecting you and how have you taken care of yourself um, mentally, spiritually, your, your whole well-being? Yes, that is a very, very big question. <laughs> when they're genuine conversations, it can be draining spiritually, physically, emotionally, and mentally. But that, when I was saying it was a faith thing earlier, when it's a genuine conversation, it's still motivating. Mm. Um, a lot of what has happened right now, though, and I think it's part of that COVID-19, everybody's inside, we have all these emotions. I'll get messages like from a person of color with a completely different perspective that thinks this is all just ridiculous from a fellow believer that does not look like me, like that kind of stuff. It's like, oh, let's talk about this. That <laughs> is like beyond draining because I'm like, do they really want to have an actual conversation or is this a, all of this is ridiculous and unnecessary? Mm-hmm. Um, but when it's somebody actually seeking to figure out how to fix the problems that we're having right now, um, that balance of the fire and it being draining is still there. And be the bridge. Uh, it's funny because Amanda and I will talk after every meeting and just be like, Ooh, I'm tired, but it's still like <laughs> our fires are lit to keep doing it. Um, we have something where we assume positive intent. So with those, it's it's a different kind of drain, um, mm-hmm. but it's definitely rewarding. Like it's worth it. I guess I should put it that way to have those conversations. But to take care of myself, there are times when I have to reach out and I guess have off the book conversations with people. <laughs> Um, our moderators with Be The Bridge so Amanda and I could not be superwoman and do everything on our own Um, we have moderators that help us like we'll have conversations about different things and that is a space where I'm able to just be like y'all I can't deal with this certain event that happened today because it's just it's too much Um, but also within that I have those sisters and then other people that I can lean on um, to get prayer and kind of like just pour back into me when those times come up. I think that's good. And I think it's good that you um, have people around you that are pouring back into you, that you can have um, honest conversations with whatever you're feeling during that time, um, be it off the books or on the books. <laughs> um, Cause we all have to have those space of uh, complete vulnerability. 
what other actions can white bridge builders do uh, to pursue racial reconciliation and justice in, in our communities? Well, I mean, you know, we're going to tell you to join and be the bridge group. Uh, yeah, that's, <laughs> that's a great start. You I mean, it's a great start, yes. Um, but, you know, just so your listeners know, um, they, wherever they're located, you know, whether they're in Louisville or, you know, in Raleigh, North Carolina, they can find a Be the Bridge group um, in their city where they're at. And if there's not one, um, they can start a group. Um, but, I, you know, having, just like Timlin was talking about that self-care, having that space where we can get together and sometimes this work can feel lonely and you can feel like, am I the only one who sees this this way or feels this way? Um, sometimes you can start to think you're crazy. Um, so having that space where you can come together with other bridge builders um, gives you encouragement, um, gives you motivation, as someone said, to continue the work. Um, it builds you up and you're like, okay, no. I, I'm not, I'm not the only one that sees it this way, that there's, there's many of us. Um, so finding some type of group, whether it's not be the bridge, you know, some type of group, diverse group that's doing the work. Um, and in terms of justice, I feel like we all have um, our different areas of purpose and little spheres of influence and the way that Kelly, you pursue justice um, is or the area of which you pursue it in may be different than mine. Mine is with the school system. Um, I have kids that are in school. And so that's kind of, I've always volunteered. I've been a PTO president. Um, that's kind of my area. But, you know, uh, Steve that's in our group, uh, he might be doing something at his company, you know, that he's working at. So I think it's just finding um, that specific, particular area of influence that we each have and we each have a, a unique area that we can um, pursue justice in. I think that's good. I think bringing it down to that um, of understanding your sphere of influence and being uh, a pursuer of justice in that sphere. Cause I think sometimes we can get overwhelmed of I should be doing all of these things or a very big um, action in order to pursue judge justice. But I think you're right to bring it back down to our daily life. What are we doing in our sphere of influence to make a difference? I really like that. Timelin, what about you? What are some actions that you feel that uh, white bridge builders can do um, to pursue racial reconciliation and justice? Well, I loved what um, Amanda said about recognizing within your sphere of influence. Um, one of the major things I would say is to educate yourself um, kind of on the side as you are exploring different avenues. And I say that because as you are coming into contact with new people, they are not going to want to be the person that answers all of your questions. So there is some self-work that you need to do alongside that. Um, I love finding out about people's stories and lives. I would start um, in a person's city. So if they're here in Louisville, look at different policies, um, different schools that may be treated differently because of things like redlining or that type of thing. 
and tapping into that sphere of influence. I know that in one of our past sessions, one of the things or examples rather that I thought of, um, I am a Bellarmine alumni. And one of the things that we do there, we just give back to our school because it's just passed down. So it never occurred to me that other schools aren't in the same position to do that. So I said, what effort would it take for me to not volunteer my time at Bellarmine? Because if I don't, somebody else will. And I mean, I still do, but they're not going to hurt if I don't. Versus looking at another school, and the one that I had mentioned was Simmons College here, where they don't have the mentor program or anything like that. So it's still the same amount of time, but having a much bigger impact. Um, and like Amanda was saying with schools, Louisville has so many schools here. Um, we were blessed. So like my daughter, awesome PTA and all that. But I'm like, look at the schools that don't have um, access to tutoring or they're not on free lunch, but a lot of the students probably still need it. Like there are things like that that you can step in and do and help that's not on the front lines protesting, but it's just as important to do. Mm. That's good. I really, I like that. Again, bringing it back to look at your daily life, look at what you're currently involved in and how can you um, pursue change and justice there. I think that's great. I think unfortunately, anywhere we look in our daily lives, there is injustice and inequity. And so as we increase our awareness, we will begin to see that um, and we can start working there. Yeah, you're right. We're going to see those injustices. And then we do have a decision and a choice to make whether or not we're going to pursue justice um, or remain complicit in the injustice. Mm -hmm. What's the biggest lesson that each of you have learned on this journey? Well, I know for me, the biggest thing that I've learned is that it is a journey. It's not a one and done. We're going to have one conversation and everything's better. Um, it's a journey and everybody's at a different place on the road. So even though Amanda and I have been in Be the Bridge at New Birth as long as each other, we're still in different places with our awareness, things that God's revealed to us, um, with who we can impact, and even the things that we still <laughs> need work on um, to let go of and repent of as well. Um, Amanda and I always joke because we're both Enneagram one. So like, I can't just complete this and it be perfect. That is, that is something I struggle with. Yes. Yes. So, a fellow one agrees with you. Yes. <laughs> accepting that this is a journey and I can't control anybody else's journey. So they have to get through that road on their own. Biggest lesson I've learned. Yeah. Mm. Yes. They, they have to do the work. We all have to do our own work. Yeah. I think for me, um, my two biggest lessons, one is, I'm going to be really honest, whenever we started our first Be the Bridge group, which um, that's been a little bit over a year ago, um, I was co-facilitating with our pastor's wife. And I'm going to tell you, when I went into that room night one, I mean, 
I didn't say it audibly, but what was in my head and in my spirit was white people, you've got a lot of work to do. You need to listen. You've got a lot of deconstructing to do. And by the second meeting, God humbled me. Um, and I, um, our friend Sharita, fellow bridge builder had shared something and I was like, Oh, wow. We all have work to do. Um, when it comes to bridge building and racial reconciliation, it's just, different kinds of work. Uh, so that was the biggest uh, learning thing for me. And I fully agree with Timlin on the journey. Uh, we're never done with the work. Um, and personally, for me right now, I'm trying to really move towards the justice and the action piece. Um, and I feel like that's a natural outflow. If Timlin and I truly are friends, that I'm going to pursue justice for Timelin. Um, so yeah, those are my two things. Yeah. And I think you both are right. Um, and I love that you said you're Enneagram one because yes. So, and part of that is, you know, when we see injustice, we want to make a plan of <laughs> step one, two, three, and here is justice. We got there, but I'm, I'm curious how you guys handle that tension of, needing justice to be a reality today and understanding that it's a journey and a process to get to prayer and fasting. Mm. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Um, and that's one of the things I love the conversations that Amanda and I and our moderators have, because there will be days where, I'm like, I need it right now, but I'll see something crazy on social media. And I'm like, guys, I just can't like help me. <laughs> um, but yeah, ultimately it does go back to prayer um, and fasting because without that, like I personally would just be empty because there are days where it's like, this is awesome. We're making so much progress. But the time between those days sometimes is just like overwhelming. Like, when is this going to end? Yeah. Um, but yeah, that Amanda may have a more biblical answer than that. I don't know. That was kind of a spiritual, <laughs> no. like, oh, yes, I forgot about that part. We got to pray fast. You're right. You're right. I have an absolutely non biblical, <laughs> non spiritual answer. So, um, and it goes back to my Enneagram oneness. And that is just simply, I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Um, and, you know, we, we talk about it and be the bridge. Um, do I honestly, yes, I want justice now. Do I believe that we're going to get justice now? And even in my lifetime, probably not. But I'm going to do what I'm supposed to do. Um, what I feel God is calling me to do. Um, while I'm here and hopefully as a result our world's a little bit better um, you know when I leave it um, but you also never know I always also say during the civil rights movement did Dr. Martin Luther King think uh, did they really believe that uh, the things would change as they did as their results I don't know mm. um, so maybe we will uh, shock ourselves and uh have huge changes, which would be amazing, but it would. And I think we can still have that hope. 
So what is something that has sustained you or encouraged you lately to keep going in this journey? For me, it has been the individuals that have reached out. Um, Social media is funny because you never know who's actually watching. Um, So being a person that people felt that they could reach out to during this time to learn how to make themselves more aware or um, felt convicted about things and wanted to ask me, like, what did that really come across as? That, for me, was encouragement. Um, not was, it is encouragement. As those people reach out, um, means we're doing something right. <laughs> So even if we're not seeing the effects of it um, on a larger scale, there are people's lives being affected and we don't know who their sphere of influence is. So that's that's definitely been sustaining and encouraging for me. And for me, what sustains me are my relationships with um, fellow bridge builders of color Um, as my relationships develop and deepen, I sure as heck am going to continue doing this work and using my voice because I want Timeline's husband, I want all of my sisters that have husbands, I want their husbands to be safe. I want their children to be safe. I want Timeline to be able to sleep in her bed at night and feel safe, as safe as I feel. Um, So those relationships uh, sustain me. Also, kind of like what Timlin was also saying, when someone, um, and as I shared earlier, when someone gets it, or when they just say, okay, I'm going to start doing the work, like my eyes have been open. And I get that. I empathize with that. I I always say I was not some kind of like woke person. Uh, I lived in a white bubble. I was completely clueless. But that also gives me hope because I know where I started, where I'm at, and hopefully where I'm headed, that if I can get it and I can have my blindness removed, um, then others can. So, you know, I I empathize with that. And I'm so thankful that both of you are and being such leaders in this community, in this space. The last question I want to ask you guys is what advice – for anybody, be it a white person, a person of color, um, do you have for someone that is just starting out um, on this journey? What advice would you get them uh, to get started? Well, I'll, I'll answer that for uh, the white bridge builders. Um, I, I'm going to go back to our topic of active listening. Um, listen with a humble, open heart. Um, start educating yourself. Um, I said it earlier, I grew up with my dad saying it, you just don't know what you don't know. (laughs) And 40 some odd years later, I'm like, wow, that thing still holds true. I just don't know what I don't know. Um, And so listen and start becoming aware by educating yourself. And I think um, a couple of great ways to educate ourselves, I mean, Instagram is a wonderful, wonderful uh, tool. There's so many accounts that we can follow. Um, Also, Be the Bridge on their main page has units for people to complete when you join that group. And it is great foundational learning. 
And then also they offer what's called Be the Bridge 101 Foundational Principles for White Bridge Builders. Um, and there's four topics, white supremacy, white privilege, white culture, and white fragility that are covered in that. Um, so all of those would be really great places to start. Amanda kind of dipped into mine. Um, so for a bridge builder of color, one of the things that um, I learned just from our last group that started um, a little over a year ago was I would tell people, you don't know what they don't know. Because mm. with this assumption that like, we have all of this history that just shows how bad things have been. But when I go back and think about like, where did I learn about things like Black Wall Street? Where did I learn about um, things during the civil rights movement? It wasn't in school. So if they don't have my black parents or grandparents or family members, where would they have learned that from? Um, and I know as a person of color, like we do hear it over and over and over again to give other people grace. But in this situation, as people are actually learning real history, or I should say like unrestricted history rather, mm -hmm. there's a, there's a shock factor there. And it is like amazing to see people's faces when they find out about stuff like Black Wall Street for the first time. Um, and with that grace, having the conversation from there, because even as bridge builders of color, as we mentioned earlier, everybody has to be willing to have the conversation, not just talk at each other. Um, so you don't know what they don't know. They don't know what they don't know, <laughs> but being ready to have the conversation once the other bridge builders are aware. Yeah, I think that's a great point uh, that both of you bring. And I think, Timlin, for you to offer and start from such a place of grace is um, is really humbling and really challenging um, for my own heart. And I, I greatly appreciate both of your leadership and your humbleness um, and your passion to pursue this to acknowledge the work that you have to do as individuals, um, that you're still working and it's not something you did and accomplished. It's something that you are in the process of. And um, I'm very inspired by that. I appreciate what you guys are doing. Um, and thank you so much for taking the time today to, to talk about it, to share your journey. I know it is impacting so many lives and uh, I can't remember who said it earlier, but you don't even know whose sphere of influence you're impacting. And I think we're just going to continue to see the ripple effect of those lives that you guys are transforming and changing. So thank you so much. For thank you for listening today. I encourage you to come to the table and join the conversation of racial reconciliation. I also encourage you to evaluate your current sphere of influence and determine how you can make a difference for justice. For more information on how to start or continue your journey, check out the Be The Bridge website or Facebook page, as well as Latasha Morrison's book, Be The Bridge, Pursuing God's Heart for Racial Reconciliation. I'll see you next time, and let's get to it.